If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And today on the show, I had the pleasure of chatting with Michael Hebb. Michael is one of his generation's great table makers, underground restaurateurs, food provocateur, and is credited with creating the modern underground restaurant movement in the United States. He's a partner at Round Glass and the founder of DeathOverDinner.org, The Living Wake, and the co-founder of MuslimNeighbor.com and the author of Let's Talk About Death. He currently serves as a board advisor at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts. He's also the founder of Convivium OnePot, a creative agency specializing in the common tables technology and the ability to shift culture through thoughtful food and discourse-based engagements and happenings. He joins us to discuss founding what many regard as the modern underground food scene in the U.S. and how that work led him to his current focus around death, dying well, and his view that talking about death is great medicine for the living. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Hebb. Michael, thank you for being on the podcast. Jeffrey, it's an honor. Michael, not only are you a dear friend, but you were for a time a mentor. I still consider you a mentor, Jeff. Don't pretend. My first reverse mentor. Mm. Well, uh, Michael, the theme of much of this podcast is going to be on Michael's work on death. But Michael also had a storied career as a table maker and a chef. True or false? True. Very talented woodworker. (laughs) That's a good uh, (laughs) correction because you can't assume that people know what I mean by that. Michael had a specialty of really gathering people around the dinner table. He once told me that the greatest piece of technology ever created was actually the dinner table because that's where people came together to break bread and collaborate. 
And uh, that was the thing that ended up changing the outcomes of civilizations. And so he did this work both as a restaurateur, formerly of Portland and now in Seattle is where he's based now. But uh, yeah, you know, in terms of Summit, and I'd say, you know, the key skill set that we, you know, gained that helped us build our global community, it was, it was that, it was that work around the table. Yeah, I mean, it's the first internet. It also is, in my mind, the first architecture. And it's the place where we became human. So it's, it's, got, it's got a lot of going on. Unpack that, though. Tell us what that means. It's the first architecture, the place where we became, what does that mean? Yeah, well, let's go back before architecture. And humans actually made the evolutionary leap by cooking. And this is one of those great moments where Darwin was wrong. We like Darwin being right. Yay, hurrah, all about it. But occasionally Darwin was wrong. And Darwin had it that we made the evolutionary leap from ape to man by hunting and killing animals and eating their flesh. That was actually Neanderthals. We killed off Neanderthals, the human <laughs> the same yeah. did. We actually made that leap because we learned how to cook. And cooking's a weird thing, for one, because apes tend to be afraid of fire. And so at some point, we discovered that cooking something over fire was one, delicious, but it also concentrated calories. So an ape chews seven hours a day. That's like a constant grind to get the nutrients they need. We chew 24 minutes a day. And this huge evolutionary leap happened because we started getting nutrients a lot easier and our bellies got a lot smaller. And all of a sudden there was this opening and our jaws weren't constantly going and our jaws started to thin out. And all of a sudden there was more space in our brain and you know nature abhors a vacuum. And it ended up being filled with brains <laughs> so, um, and then we got language and somewhere I'm sure Terrence McKenna's theory of one of those apes wandering off and chewing on a psilocybin mushroom came into play. Uh, essentially cooking made us human. Yeah. There's a caloric component, but there's also just the pure energy component, right? Like, you know, having to digest raw meat or raw food versus cooked food now allows for all of that energy to go to the brain, which is, as I understand it, some of the underpinnings of like the macrobiotic diet. For sure. And, you know, with this conversation, we can't veer too deeply into molecular biology or evolutionary biology. But tell us, what, so what do you mean by like, you know, the original internet? The table is a very interesting intentional space, if you think about it. We had shelter, but the idea of creating a space that wasn't for our basic human needs, but was for sharing one of those basic human needs, it's pretty revolutionary. To create an, mm -hmm. a social environment for the sharing and the exchange of food and then quickly ideas. That really is what the table is and what it has always been. And for me, it was very clear that it is architecture and it is the purest form and you don't need million dollar or 10 million or a hundred million dollar buildings to achieve the function of pure architecture, which was to create transformational experience, human experience. And you can create that with a table or an implied table for almost nothing, and it's available to everybody. And I got completely obsessed and enchanted with this idea. But yeah, it's also the first internet. This is where our networks grew and started. As humans, we're drawn to the table like this magnet. At early tables, people would identify themselves at these hosted tables, these feasts, etc. You would literally give your hashtag, or I mean your, um, your handle. And we see it in the Iliad. 
you're like, I am Agamemnon, son of, son of, and you go through and you give your whole lineage, which is essentially the modern equivalent of this is my, uh, my handle or my email address. Yeah. <laughs> and, and stories, man. Stories, bards went, were paid to go from table to table. Tell us how you got here, you know, and we'll, and we'll get to the work that you do on death and how talking about death is medicine, another one of my favorite topics to chop it up with you on. But, you know, give, give us a little bit of your background. Where are you from? How did you get into this world? Yeah, so I'm, I'm from the great Pacific Northwest. And when you're from here, it's hard to ever leave because it's really, in many ways, heaven on earth. But I, I went to Reed College to study the classics. I was drawn toward the classics. And then I realized that I didn't want to be in an environment, an academic environment that was so isolated from real life. Such an ivory tower, even though it was a very like cool summer of love, intellectual, you know, acid being dropped everywhere, ivory tower. But I wanted to change shit. I wanted to be part of the dusty world of the real life. And so I started studying architecture and in my fourth year of architecture school, I was taken out of architecture school by a brilliant visionary architect who came to my senior crit. And I was actually in this, this pissing match between Mark Lakeman, this architect, and Brad Klopfill. So Brad Klopfill went on to be one of the best known architects, Allied Works, in the country slash world right now. But the time was Brad was just starting his practice and he was taking the piss out of me and my crit. And Mark came to my defense and he actually went so far as to say, Michael, I love your project so much. I want to buy your model, this like shitty architectural model. And will you have tea with me afterwards? So long, long story long, Mark and I started working together. He asked me to be his co-founder and we started doing a lot of illegal architecture, what we called guerrilla architecture. And one of those projects was intersection repair, where we illegally went out and got the whole neighborhood in Selwood in Portland to paint this 500-foot Anasazi symbol of life on the sidewalk. And we ripped up the, the corners of the sidewalk. And we, we said, essentially, this is, it was before Burning Man had really become in consciousness, but it was like, this is our space and we're going to do what we want with it. And the city went apeshit. So that was my, the first taste of how important crime is um, and how important it is to have a design attached to your crime. Like you need to have a really good reason to exercise civil disobedience. And when you do, it can be so impactful. The city ended up adopting after crying in their beer for a long time, like ended up saying, not only um, are we going to fine you, they end up saying this should be a citywide project. It won the American Institute of Architects People's Choice Award. There's now thousands of intersection repairs all over the world. And I really understood another model, which was this blueprint model. Give people the tools to build their own thing, their own culture. And it can be so much more impactful than just what you can create by yourself. Well, that's also been part of your story as you've moved through these different disciplines. You know, tell us about your transition to food. Yeah. Well, we were running this this big nonprofit in Portland, City Repair and Communitexture, and I grew really exhausted with having to create consensus, quite frankly. Some of us that are dreamers but also manifestors want to get busy. Like we want to make shit. We want to th- draw it. 
figure out how it's going to get done and then make it in the same day. And we had developed a culture of consensus, which is a beautiful way to do something. And I was just too young and I didn't have the patience for it. And so started thinking about food, um, mostly because my girlfriend at the time was a really talented cook and we created a private chef company for her and started catering and doing these catering events. And I was like, catering's kind of bullshit. I don't want to just do respond to what people need. Let's, how are we going to use food to create our own experiences, but not a restaurant? And I'd read this story in Savour, which is, used to be this great magazine about the Paladores in Cuba. And they were these illegal restaurants that Cubans were creating in their, in their living rooms um, and in their kitchens because they didn't know how to feed their families. Um, and they were doing this at the risk of being thrown into a Cuban prison, which doesn't sound fun. And, but I saw that idea and was like, wait, we could do that in the United States. The culinary world doesn't have an underground. Like we have garage music bands, we have underground artists, we've got underground poets, we've got, we had no food underground. You either went to Culinary Institute of America or you came up under Alice Waters or Alain Ducasse or you cut your teeth in, in the food world in only a couple different ways. And then you raised a bunch of money and you opened your own restaurant or you worked for somebody else. Like, that's it. No, you know, exciting, experimental underground. And so I was like, wait a second, let's create a restaurant in our living room. But with the idea it won't just be about our experience. It will be that blueprint model. If we can tell people that you can do this, even if you're breaking the law, and it's very unlikely that they will come and police you, and you can create culture and experience and test out what it is to cook for people, how good you are at it in your living room with no investment. Like I want that everywhere. I want to be able to pop into Berlin and to Singapore and know that this type of experience is happening. And so we did it. And, you know, we were kids and, if you would have asked me what the plan was at that time, if I was feeling comfortable in conversation, I would have told you that it was to start a global food underground. Um, and you would have said, you're fucking crazy. You are a couple of broke kids with a bungalow. And, um, and we did, uh, we launched this thing two times a month and we had like, you know, Gus Van Sant and Miranda July and all these fucking amazing people coming to our dinner and putting money in a jar. And six months later, we're on the front page of the dining section of the New York times. It's just an unbelievable story. The demand became unbelievable, right? Like every everybody who was anybody in Portland wanted to be at these dinners. And you're literally like making the courses like in whatever you can in that bungalow. And 15 years later, you're doing the same type of work, not just cooking meals, but building tables and creating environments for the Obamas. <laughs> yeah. It was a gamble and it worked. And I mean, what happened, how I ended up in this bungalow with not being able to afford chairs for dinner. And so the cost of the first dinner was to bring a chair and leave it. I built a 21 foot table, three, seven foot hollow core doors from Home Depot that I planned on returning if this was a bust and um, figured out a way that one person could erect this table while the other person held the baby because August was three months old when we had our first dinner um, at the house. So <laughs> I got really interested in not just getting people to the table and having them have a, um, a meaningful convivial time and a connection, but I got interested in 
how can the conversations that we have at the table change the conversations that we're having nationally and globally? How can they change the most powerful conversations in those smoky dark rooms? How do we get access to those smoky dark rooms or those high level dinners and then incept them with meaning instead of people just sizing themselves up instead of the egoic speechifying that happens at those dinners like how do i get the most powerful people on the planet to talk about the hardest shit and be vulnerable with each other and then have them love that experience and want it to scale it and how could that change world events like that was that's how i started to get interested in the table i was like okay this underground restaurant thing is going to go and people are going to be drawn back to the table and that's awesome but what's next and that's that took me on a pretty wild journey we'll be back with more art of the hustle after the break hi there i'm bob pittman chairman and ceo of iHeartMedia. media welcome to math and magic stories from the frontiers of marketing this week i'm talking to the one and only ryan seacrest love the connection to people I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, I remember our first dinner that we did together that we co-created. First and foremost, it started with a provocation. What is the intention for us all gathering? If it's just to eat and bullshit with one another, that's not a really great provocation. And frankly, you're not going to get the people that you want at the table without having a real reason for them to gather. And I'd say, you know, the number one ingredient in all of this is the quality of people that you can gather and the diversity of thought. I think the theme of ours was remixing the Declaration of Independence. And we made a mini declaration that was letter pressed that came in a manila envelope that also had a razor blade in it. Do you remember this? <laughs> of course I remember. I remember sitting on my bed in the Hyatt where we were hosting DC 10, your 800 person stage dive of an event. Yes. Um, <laughs> well put. And here I was on my bed in a hotel room using sandpaper to slightly dull the edges of the razor blades that we were about to send out to this, the 30 or so most influential people coming to your event to invite them to this dinner. You know, I was like, I love the idea of giving somebody a razor blade in something that's an imitation to food because I have a dark sense of humor. And I was like, that idea of a razor blade being in an apple which was such a fucked up thing and never actually happened and changed Halloween forever and the way we trust other people. But like, I wanted to play with that, with these powerful people. And and we did, we reset the declaration of independence in Helvetica and said, maybe you want to cut this up. Maybe you want to remix it. Maybe you want to save it, but let's come to dinner together and let's talk about it. To that point, the dinner begins. Like the experience has already started when you open that envelope and you're like, what is this? Like, this is crazy. It shows the level of intention, which is frankly what magic is, right? The fact that somebody would put this much effort into creating something, some illusion for you in the first place. I mention all of this because like those ingredients of placemaking, of making something really special, of something really memorable, something really differentiated. I just think it's so important. I'd love for you to give just a couple more examples of this work. The two that stick out to me, the I-5 dinner, I think was incredibly magical. And then the one where you brought strangers is like one of the most beautiful things I'd ever heard. Yeah. And let's pause on the DC-10 dinner for just a second, because I think there's an incredible story that tells a very important thing. So we we laid really um, impressive plans for this dinner, right? We had the Buses all lined up. We had the invitation was perfect. I had a, the James, three times James Beard winner, et cetera, chef working with me. And I was cooking too. And it, this incredible Frank Lloyd Wright had all of these things. And it was set for 30 people. And our friend Elliot got really excited. And, and there were 60 people um, that showed up. Literally 30 people that weren't on the program, had no fucking idea. And I didn't have seats for him. And I didn't have food for him. And it was like a loaves and fishes moment. And it was just like, fuck it, we're, what are we going to do? We're just going to take care of these people. Because it was like, you know, it was uh, Olivia Munn and, and and Tim Ferriss and Kirsten Bell. And, you know, it was all these, and but also Howard Buffett Jr. And that <laughs> was an yeah. incredible group of very thoughtful human beings descended upon this table of 30, and there were 60 of them. And um, I remember then, I was just like, fine, I'm just going to figure it out. And we got them all down. We got them all seated at this table, And I had to make a decision. I was like, many of these people don't know the program. And I gave, got up and gave one of these speeches that there's moments that change our lives. And this was one of them. And I said, well, welcome to dinner, you powerful people, you impressive people. I'm so glad that there's 30 more of you here, 
But the reality is, it fucks our night. Like, we've completely had really... <laughs> I remember this. You're like, this is a ruined event. But Yeah, it was like, it is, we had a beautiful intention. Let me tell you what it was. It was this beautiful idea to rethink the Declaration of Independence. And we have literally, we have destroyed that. And it's okay. Now, what I challenge you to do was like, we could just accept that that was a beautiful idea and it didn't happen and we can all eat some pasta and it's going to be really good pasta. Or you can be brave enough, you can be powerful enough to still do the thing. Like you can do it right now. You can grab, I, I challenge you to grab this space that I'm standing in right now and tell us about how you think the Declaration of Independence could be rethought. And Noah Tishby gets up and she's like, I, I'll, I see your challenge, this incredible activist, actor, artist, writer. And she says, I'm a Jewish woman from Israel, and I want to take this moment to talk about forgiveness for jihad, for jihadists and for jihad as a thing. Like, and, and went on this incredible soliloquy about forgiveness and understanding and how Islam is a younger religion and that there were a lot of mistakes made in her religion. And then you had Shervin Pishvar, of all people, said, I actually, last night on my Blackberry, rewrote the Declaration of Independence and let me read it. And then Chris Saka gets up and Ellen Gustafson gets up. Saka talks about his riding his bike across the country. And we were just in tears and moved. And it became this thing where you, you can make plans for things and they, they really matter. And like Jeff said, that intentionality is, is magic, but you also need to be able to be brave enough to step into a moment and see what the opportunity is when everything that you've set out to do is being destroyed. <laughs> so. And just cause I had mentioned it, will you tell the listeners just a little bit about so so they get a, a, an understanding of some of the different manifestations of how this work actually played out. I do <laughs> want you to show off and talk about, you know, the ones that were the most creative and the most sort of available to people. Yeah. I mean, there's been so many, it's, it's hard to even know what to pick from, but there, you, you mentioned the dinner where I invited strangers and somebody wanted to make a TV show of the work that I do. And I was like, oh, and I'm in that conversation again right now. And it's so hard. And it's so hard to capture um, the type of magic of human connection that happens at the table. And I was thinking about how I could actually create a dinner as a pilot for the show. And I was like, you know what? Bring your television crews, you know, bring the production crew and just follow me around. I'm going to go around Seattle for a day. And I'm just going to invite complete strangers to a dinner. Uh, and I'm going to talk to like, I don't know, 200 people, and I'm going to have this beautiful invite. And most people are going to think I'm fucking crazy because I'm offering this free dinner at this location at this time. And I'm going to have interesting conversations, and people are going to treat me in a bunch of different ways. And then we'll see what happens at dinner. And they're like, you don't have a plan for the dinner? I was like, no, I have no idea. Let's just like get in my car and let's go. And we did, and we invited all of these people. And we had 60 people or so, 50 people show up for dinner. And um, I had a couple chefs, like some of Seattle's best chefs that were like cooking in the back alleyway. And the amount of 
humanity and the stories that came like people got up on top of the table and like spat poetry and people cried and this man who hasn't probably told his wife that he loves her for 20 years started crying and telling him how much he loves her and how like the generosity of the spirit of seattle they were like vacationing from phoenix or something like had cracked him open and then this one story this man started sharing and he's like, I work at the Lusty Lady and the Lusty Lady is a formerly a peep show parlor, women owned, a woman operated peep show parlor. And he's like, I'm the guy, I'm the janitor at this peep show parlor. And oh my, like the amount of compassion and love and appreciation for this man who never gets appreciated, right? Like we do not, we don't, go up like this man is getting hugged and appreciated and for his for the vulnerability to share what he does uh, you know it's just like with a group of strangers no less like a group that typically he would think would judge him i imagine absolutely what a risky thing to say you know and you watch these people being vulnerable and you watch these people being you know that's the thing that i learned so i did a lot of fancy parties and dinners and we brought together presidents and world leaders. And I actually watched policy shift and change at a single conversation at a single table. And that's extraordinary. But the thing that I saw that was more important than anything is that if you can tap into the magic of human beings being vulnerable to each other in a group setting, especially among the people that they know, exposing them, their humanity, being seen and seeing each other, that's the biggest gift I can possibly give the world. And it is, it's what I have now spent the rest of my, my life focused on is how do you, how do you scale that? Not just go one by one. I had to, I had to do the one by one. I had to learn that scary, difficult conversations are actually the most transformative. And how do you get people to go there? Well, and speaking of scary, difficult conversations that yield the most incredible outcomes, um, you know, you around this exact same time gave me what what is still one of my favorite books, which is called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. You went on to write, you know, a wonderful book called Let's Have Dinner and Talk About Death and built a global organization called Death Over Dinner, which, you know, yielded those conversations to a scale I imagine you never thought would have been possible. Yeah. And Actually, our mutual friend, David Denberg, is staying with me right now. And <laughs> we were talking to his, his uh, fiance about the beginning of Death Over Dinner just this morning. And it reminded me that I had this deep yearning to scale the dinner table. I was doing an art form that was a one-off experiential art form. You had to be there. It was gone. It's almost impossible to document and very difficult to actually get the value for what it is um, in payment. And I certainly didn't want to have people pay one by one to come to dinners. Um, I wanted patrons and, you know, so working like an artist. And then I realized in kind of a Marcel Duchamp way, like how do you scale, how do you take art and produce it at scale without it losing value, without it losing meaning, without it losing its potency? That's a, that's a real trick. And it's age old challenge. Yeah. And, and it looks impossible. Like, how do you make the finite infinite? And I was like, how do I make the dinner table, which is defined by its intimacy, defined by its edges? And by that, I mean, like, dinner for six is so much better than a dinner for a hundred. And we all know this because of the weddings and the events that we've been to, and we've sat in a sea of tables, and it just doesn't feel good. Whereas our most memorable meals are always 
a few friends and I like, you know, and some caper happened and we're in this place and it's never, I was at the French laundry or Noma. It's always yeah. a human connection. But anyways, like how do you, how do we scale these experiences that I was having? And so that they could impact more people. And I took a job teaching at the university of Washington in the graduate school of communications. And for the listeners out there, since, you know, this is the art of the hustle, um, I'm a college dropout who got a graduate teaching position. So you can do that. And you will piss off people who have <laughs> PhDs attached to their names when you do that, but you can do it. And I'm not talking about an honorary degree. I'm talking about like teaching. Um, I took this position to teach and think about how you scale the table. And um, our mutual friend Chase Jarvis and I like were like, maybe the table is a broadcasting agent. And we wired it up with cameras so that we could broadcast the conversation. And that was fun, but it was a failure. And our other mutual friend, Kate Bailey, who designed the Microsoft Surface, we designed a table at Trefethen Vineyard that was like, what if the table remembers the conversation, but subtly like our brains, and then it able, was able to tell its stories. And so we interwove cameras secretly into the table, or, you know, we let people know, but then they forgot about them because it was integrated. And that was a disaster. <laughs> it was great. It almost became a TV show with uh, our friend Stacy Scher, but nonetheless landed at, wait a second, why don't we look at board games and say, we really understand board games. You sit down to a board game and they own you for a period of time and you follow the rules and there's no question about how to do it. There's no anxiety. There's very little anxiety about playing a board game. It's like, let's use that model. Let's tell people how to have the dinner, give them the script, give them the container. They have to create the experience themselves like they would with a board game. We're not going to go around and uh, roast chicken for them, but we'll give them everything they need for the experience. So I went shopping for a, a topic and death has had a huge impact on my life. I lost my father when I was 13 and, and it was tragic the way that my family didn't talk about it, didn't deal with it. And I realized I was educated quite synchronistically um, on a train ride. Two physicians were like, yeah, the most broken part of our healthcare system is how we die. And most people want to die at home and most people die in hospitals. And most people aren't getting what they want. And what is it? 90% of our lifetime healthcare cost happens in the last year of our lives? It's, it's a ridiculous amount. The reason why our healthcare system is so expensive is because we're not in my mind and there are statistics to support this but i'll we don't need to go down statistic highway but it's very clear to me that our system would be affordable if doctors and nurses and the system itself it's not just them but social workers they were given the permission the training and the tools and the billable hours to have conversations with people about end of life to create a plan because the default is always very expensive. It's the same as, hey, I want to go to Italy a year from now. Let me shop around for some deals. You're going to go to Italy for 200 bucks, 400 bucks, 500 bucks. Now, if I'm like, I want to go to Italy this afternoon, right? You're going to pay yeah. $2,000, something like that, right? $1,500. You are going to pay a 300%, right? Yeah. Same thing with death. Same thing with any kind of, same thing with a house, same thing with anything. If you're doing it as an impulse or if you're doing it as a default, it's going to cost you. And so I saw that and I was like, wow, people aren't having this conversation. 
No one's giving them permission or an invitation to have this conversation. And it's costing them emotionally, physically, in their wellness, which we can talk about, but financially as well. All right, let's change that. And so Death of a Dinner was born. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I've heard you say it a number of times that it's medicine to talk about death while you're living, not just the economic costs, which is significant to many families throughout the country, throughout the world. But how do you see it as a medicine for us while we're living? Yeah, I mean, death has always been medicine. Philosophers have understood this. Certainly, religion has always understood this. The thing is, we don't know anything about death. We can't say anything about death. We can only talk about life. But death is one of the best ways to look at our lives and what we want to do with it. It is a finite life that we have, as far as we know. I mean, we don't know what happens when we kick through the other side. But if you want to get clear on your priorities, why you're here and what you want to accomplish. If you want to live a meaningful life, right? Right now we are suffering from a 
public health crisis that is called the lack of meaning. Um, and it's why there's so many pills for depression and painkillers. It's one of the reasons why there's so much of that consumed. We have a massive global lack of meaning problem. If you want those things, then death is the best way. Talking about your mortality, facing your mortality is the best thing to get clear on those things. And if you want something that resembles what feels like a destiny, then facing your mortality has always been the best way to get to that. You know, I want to echo what you're saying. Like when I went through that self-education and self-conversation, it really was incredibly freeing. It really allowed me to like sort of love with more abandon, knowing that I was choosing those people and that love. And it, it allowed me to really focus on my work in a way where I both know that it's not important and it's of ultimate importance. What you're talking about, I think can be clarified in a really simple analogy. Those, those folks like Becker or certainly talk about um, how the castles we build are about defending ourselves against death, right? And whether it's our work or um, our, our love life or our, who we associate with, I'm doing this work defending myself against death because death is um, coming. Now, that's one way of doing it. Like, and you can have this beautiful castle that is set up with moats and walls, you know, what I'd rather have is something that looks more like Auroraville or something that looks like an ashram, something that people can walk into that isn't defended, that feels good. And so it, you can live in the classic death-denying way. I don't think Becker and some of those folks, Jung a little bit, don't give us access to it, but certainly Eastern mysticism does, is if we get okay or we get more comfortable with or have a deeper relationship with our impermanence, then we actually can reduce the distance between each other, not just have it be camera one and camera two, but start to get actually intimate in our lives with our relationships. And that's a type of immortality that I'm interested in. You know, I know that that death over dinner was incredibly empowering to so many people just to have these conversations for the first or the hundredth time. You know, it's always an incredible reset and reframing just to focus on honoring death, honoring impermanence with the glorious present. The other aspect of, of talking about your mortality, talking about your last chapter, talking about death, and you don't even have to call it death if you want to. I think that's the stronger medicine and you should take it and it's okay to get good with the D word. But what you're doing is the opposite of repression and the opposite of suppression. You know you're mortal. You know it. And so if you're not talking about it or coming to terms with it, you are repressing it or suppressing it. And we know that that actually causes disease. Mayo Clinic knows that repressive styles cause cancer. We know that suppression of emotion is connected to heart disease. So if you want to exercise that muscle that's going to keep you alive, longer. Um, it is talking about the things that we're repressing and suppressing. And you might as well start with a number one, right? The other ones are much easier once you knock off death. And actually, people love talking about death. And they're talking about death all the time. They're just not um, being given the great design and imitation the way the Death Over Dinner does or Death Cafes or the Conversation Project. And so we launched this thing, this like crazy ass idea like, yeah, everybody wants to talk about death. Everybody wants to come to dinner and talk about death. Here's how you do it. And it worked. And at first it didn't work in a sense that the medical world was still like, we don't, we don't want what you're selling. 
But at this point, over a million people, sorry about the background noise, but um, over a million people um, have come together and I had these death dinners and eventually we broke through and we broke into the medical establishment. And we ended up this year, past year building the healthcare edition of Death Over Dinner with the Cleveland Clinic. Congratulations. I didn't know that. Yeah. There, there are, from the ground up with them and, and with Memorial Sloan Kettering, two of the most respected medical institutions in the world. And they're now having death dinners all of the time, even virtually during COVID. And it's changing the culture of the conversation with these frontline healthcare workers, which will impact countless people. So we knocked a little knock on the big castle gate. <laughs> totally. And I would love for you to tell us about your work now with uh, round glass and into life and how you guys are working to bring vitality and preparedness to the end of life conversation. Yeah. So we were doing great work, you know, with death over dinner and it continues. Um, but it was a little bit like we had invited people to a, um, a party, almost like to a summit, like say we're inviting them to summit outside and we're like, it's going to be amazing. Um, you're going to come and you're going to create this amazing plan. Now you've had nuanced conversations about end of life. And so you're ready for it and you need to make a plan. You need to make a plan. And then it was like, well, where do we go to make a plan? You got us talking about this thing and you said it's really important that we have a power of attorney and advanced care directive and, you know, a DNR and all of these things. How do we do that? And where do we do that? And there was no good resource. Um, there was no singular place where I could send somebody to say, here's where you make a plan. And here's where you find the best providers. And here's where you find the best experts and content and courses if you need them. And you can invite your family in and they can make a plan too. And you can share it. And, you know, in this crazy world where we don't have control, you can have a little bit of control. So we, I knew it was missing from the moment from the first death dinner. I knew that we had set people up for a little bit of failure. I knew I wanted to correct it. And I eventually met um, Sunny Singh, the founder of Round Glass. We spent a long time getting to know each other, you know, and I didn't want to take venture capital money for this. I didn't want to take bank money for it. Why not? It's, it's hard work. Um, it isn't, the death space is not about turning a quick profit. It's not about the number of likes, the number of users. It's not the metrics that Silicon Valley, it's, you, you don't want to be People are like, you're a disruptor in the end of life. It's like, no, 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 we're not disruptor. We're caregivers. We're not interested in, you know, being a tech crunch. We are actually interested in creating an ecosystem of caregivers. So when people need care, they know where to go. Um, and that might be as simple as an app that, which we'll have soon that creates a plan, but the platform already does that. And I wanted the money to be a slow investment that came from the right place. And that's where Sunny's coming from with Round Glass too. So yeah, we built it, man, and it's live and people are using it like crazy. And we literally have 400 of the best end-of-life providers who built it with us, who were on there, which actually means thousands of experts when I say providers, because it's, you know, the association of all the chaplains or all of the hospices, and they're all partners and they are on this platform as community members and they're taking care of people when they have hard questions and they need they need assistance and so it's really really beautiful and you don't even have to join the community you can just like pop around and find the right service provider or complete your end of life plan and never have a conversation with anybody so it's 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 been it's been pretty stunning 
to see. I'm pinching myself every day as I wake up and realize that it's been built. What you just described is like something that is very rare. You made a choice not to take venture capital and found another means to support your heart-centric work. So like, tell us a little bit about how you found someone like-minded and like what you were looking for and how you communicated this work um, in a way that, you know, allowed you to build it in the way that you had envisioned. You know, you've got to start with shit to get to gold. It isn't um, a voila and it was done path. And I mean, it's hard to say no to lots of things. I said no to Martha Stewart because I didn't want to be on her show. I said no to Rachel Ray because I didn't want to be on her show because I was like, that's not my personal brand. You're on some other shit. I'm actually interested in creating culture. You've made food this circus um, or hospitality this circus. I mean, that was when I was in my 20s. And I was like, and people were like, you're saying the Martha Stewart producer was like, no one says no. And I was like, yeah, well, no, sorry. And they call me back and they're like, I'm going to lose my job. And I was like, I'm sorry, but maybe work for somebody who has a little more integrity. I actually love Martha. But uh, at the time, I was just like, we're not aligned and I'm not going to come on your show. And, and then Rachel Ray was a hard no. But I will tell you, since this is the art of the hustle, there have probably been over 100 times where I've spent my last penny and actually overdrawn my bank account to cook for other people. I have spent my last dollar on a dinner that I paid for oftentimes for billionaires, doesn't, doesn't even matter. It wasn't who, but just constantly going beyond what were my means in order to give or to create an experience. And those people that I fed and took care of, they create a community of trust around you. They know that your intention, what your intentions are. We are able to get the 400 best end of life providers onto the platform with a 100% conversion rate. 100% of people said yes, because they knew they could trust us. Because for seven years, we gave away death over dinner and didn't transactionalize it. Literally the most successful end of life awareness campaign going globally. And I never monetized it. I never transactionalized it. I never took a penny for it. Your, your actions expressed your priorities to the people that mattered the most. 100%. And we gave it away for free. And people are like, when do you think I could turn this into a profit, to a revenue stream? And I was like, you know, people tend to do that way too early in my mind. Um, show the world what you're made of. Show them that your heart is actually, and your priorities are in your walk and your talk. And, and then things, the universe will respond to that. We hear the stories of when it, when it does. And I'm sure there's stories of when it doesn't. But the reality is I think that the universe does hear us and does see us. You know, I have a, I have a different term for what you just described, the triangulation of goodwill, you know, like you create this ecosystem around you. It doesn't necessarily need to be reciprocal from the person who you, you know, overdrew your bank account to feed. It's the fact that that is the type of person that you are. And you've done it so many times for so many people that, you know, it just shows what you're really all about and what's most valuable to you. And so when people see things that are aligned with those values, you're the first person they're going to think of. You're the first person they're going to call. And, but I just, you know, want to echo that like my own life story, you know, mirrors that. And I also think that, you know, when you're, when you've seen the account go to zero, when you've had enough final Fridays, you know, you know that the game's not over. You'll always be able to find a way out. Nothing's ever really 
fucked. Like it's a different story, of course, altogether when you have kids and you have, you know, other people depending on you to put food on the table. But I think that with the type of experiences and skill set that you built through that generosity of spirit and action, that was never really like a, a mortal fear. All it is to say is that, you know, I love you and I really appreciate everything you do and stand for and uh, and completely resonate with with, you know, how you built this thing. Well, let me acknowledge something that you and the rest of the Summit crew do that is brilliant and is hard and isn't just, you know, this idea of giving selflessly. And and it was the first thing that drew me to um, the Summit community and to you in friendship was you were curious about getting hard feedback. You wanted to know where you were fucking up, how you could be better. And you and Elliot specifically have always like really welcomed and taken that and then integrated what you could with grace and with humility. And that's that's rare in, a, in, in anyone in any industry. If you can do that, your gift to the world is going to be so much more bright and aligned and alive. And I've seen it again and again. And that was the one of the things I learned from you in this beautiful mentorship that we're, we're each other's mentor. And I learned that among many other things. But uh, I just want to acknowledge you for that while we're, while we're officially on the air. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Michael, anything that you want to leave us with? You know, we really appreciate your time. We're huge fans of your work. I'm so excited to introduce the listeners to the end of life work that you're doing now with Round Glass and just this whole concept of really considering death to honor the present. Take us out. Say something really inspiring and deeply philosophical before we leave the air. Let me be grotesquely the other direction to make sure people can find the work. And it's EOL. It's <laughs> a better idea. <laughs> you can come find me at EOL.community. And my offer, um, instead of profundity in the moment, is that come meet me in there and I'll take care of you um, and your family at end of life personally. So how's that? Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> Michael Heb, Round Glass, End of Life, Art of the Hustle, EOL.community. Thank you, Michael, for being on. My pleasure. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.